We're going to be in the book of Luke once again this morning. So open your Bibles to Luke chapter 12. And, and if you're new to the Christian program, let me tell you a couple of key giant ways that Christians do exactly what we just sang. We remember what God is doing, what he has done, and what he will do. And it's marked by a couple of really key holidays, okay? In really broad brush strokes, Christmas, which we're in the Advent season now, Christmas is the arrival of Jesus Christ. And then when you get to Easter, what's going on at Easter is Jesus dies for our sins. That's the cross over here. So we've got Christmas and Easter over here. And then he rose from the dead and tied into Easter is the ascension, right? That he goes away. There is coming a future holiday that will take Christmas and Easter and be, and just like combine both of those. That's how big this holiday will be for Christians. It is the second arrival of Jesus Christ. It's that he's coming again, right? So that's where we are in the story. In fact, the word Advent, we are in the Advent season. All that means is arrival or appearance. And what, and what we hold to is this, that, that Christ appeared and that Christ is appearing again. And that's exactly where our text lands us this morning. It's, it's the absolute perfect season. It's December 1st. It's the perfect season to be thinking about This future holiday, which Christians will celebrate for eternity, which is the second coming of Christ. So knowing and remembering where you are in the story is absolutely vital to interpreting what's going on in your life. Think about this. I think some of our favorite movies have to do with people going away people promising a return, people either making good on that promise and coming back, or we see both sides of the story in the movie where the person is trying to fulfill their promise to come back like they said, but they don't have control of that and they're fighting and we're the audience going, get back and we love a happy ending where they restored and that promise is fulfilled. I think some of our favorite movies are about this theme Because this is our life. Some of your deepest wounds is that someone left, right? Some of your deepest wounds are that someone has promised something to you and they didn't make good on that promise. Some of your deepest longings right now are that this promise of return would in fact happen. So where we are in the story is a really important thing. A couple of weeks ago, we went to this phenomenal event. Uh, several of our youth and a few, a few of us adults went to this thing called Regeneration. It was with Josh and his son, uh, Sean McDowell. And one of the breakouts, uh, a friend of mine who pastors over in Santa Cruz by the name of Jay Kim, real thinker. And he did this session that was, that was titled this, Why Believe in a God Who Allows Suffering? And what he said was this. It was really profound. He said, so often when we're suffering... We ask, we go right to this question, why God? Why God am I suffering? Right? I mean, that's, that's where we tend to go. What Jace put out to us was this, a better question, even before asking why God is this, where God are we in the story? Where are we in this grand narrative that you're in control of? Let's get that established instead of going right to why God. He actually put up a slide that was really powerful. His church uses this all the time to just keep reminding his congregation of where we are in the story. 
Um, now it's, it's uh, is that going to show up? Oh man, it's always a good day when I get to use my laser pointer, but it's, it's not going to work today. Um, what we see is this, we see the creation story, right? And that's, that's Genesis 1 and 2. The next section over is divided by a red line. What's the red line? The red line is typically called the fall by theologians. And it's, it's like a nuclear bomb going off in all of creation, in all of our hearts. And when sin enters the picture, we cannot just get on with our life. Because like a nuclear reactor going off like Chernobyl, it just affects and permeates everything. So that's sin going off. And after the fall, what we see is instead of man and wife being made in God's image, living in perfect harmony in the garden, what we see is we begin to see uh, patriarchal cultural, polygamy, slavery. We can read about all this through the Old Testament. We can open our eyes and look around at some of these things. The cross here in the middle is Jesus arriving the first time, living his life, dying for our sins, and ascending. And what he is doing is he is setting in motion this beautiful picture of man and wife being reunited as God would intend them and setting up things for the future. What we see over here on this side is a blue line suggesting this, that at the second coming, there's going to be restoration. So here's where we are in the story, friends. We are in between this inaugural position where Jesus comes and begins to make all things new. He's proclaiming the kingdom of God is here, it's now, it's among you. But it's just the inauguration. There's going to be a completion, there's going to be full restoration at one point, but it's not yet. We say this over and over, we're living the now and not yet life, right? We are holding on to promises that have been inaugurated, but haven't been yet fulfilled or completed. We are in the in-between. And the in-between is filled with hope and beauty and faithfulness and all kinds of things to be thankful for. And the in-between is filled with abuse and difficulty and dread and hopelessness and darkness and mocking. And on and on we could go. Why is all that going on? It's because we are here in the story. It's been inaugurated, but it's not yet been completed. In Luke, Jesus has been telling his disciples, and he's telling his disciples and really telling us as well, how to live the free life. And we've been seeing different things. We're able to live free from the fear of other people. We're able to live free from worry. We're able to live free from sort of the tentacles of wealth and consumerism that goes on. We don't know anything about that this time of year at all. Everything's Black Friday. It just drives you insane. We're able to walk free of that. Here's where Jesus turns. There's sort of a shift in the story here. But as I'm reading along, if you just read sort of chapter 11 and 12 in in a flow, what you'll see is this. Jesus is saying, walk free of all this stuff. And in this section of scripture that we're going to look at this morning, here's in a nutshell what he's saying. He's saying, do not let your free life lead to a lazy life. Don't let all this freedom I've been preaching to you lead you to be a lazy person. Don't think that you just can coast, that you just have it made sitting here. 
And what we see is the first indication in Luke that Jesus is going away from his disciples and that he's coming again. So if you're the first disciples, you don't know how the rest of Luke goes. You put yourself there. You're hearing these sort of scary thoughts. Jesus, where are you going? Because it's a scary picture that he paints. Our title slide this morning, let me walk you through it. The big message is this. Jesus will return as promised. There's a Jesus part and there's an our part. What is our part? In short, be ready. Always. Just ever be ready. Don't be servants who get lazy. I picked a camping lantern because a lantern preaches. We're told to, to leave the lamp burning, to keep the lights on. When I think keep the lights on, I think turn the light switch on and then stand guard. Like that's all it takes for me, right? But when you're camping, what does it take to keep a, a lamp burning? It depends. Yes, yeah, some white gas, right? Uh, the little propane fuel. It takes a little bit of attending to. So that preaches. But here's the second reason, reason that a camping lantern preaches. It's because as we live this life, as we are comfortable, as our stomachs are filled, as God is faithful to repair our car under warranty even, we're on a camping trip. This is not our home. This is not the end destination. If you build your name and your kingdom and all your stuff for this life, you'll miss it. You are on a camping trip. Travel light. Look to your home that's coming one day. The younger people in the crowd have a harder time getting a hold of this than the older people in the crowd. The older people in the crowd are like, preach! I want the camping trip over soon! It's got to be better than this! Sometimes as a younger person, it's hard to get our heads around that. There's so much good. There's so much great. There's so much ahead of us. But if God should tarry and if God should bless you with 70, 80, 90 years of life, remember, next time someone sneezes, God bless you and think in your mind, that's my life. It is a mist. So we're on a camping trip. Jesus will return. And he teaches us, in your outline, the first two things that he teaches us are do kinds of things. Because I'm returning, do these two things. Number three and four in your outline are no kinds of things. Because I'm returning, know these two things. Okay? So that's how it's going to be kind of laid out. The first one is this. Because Jesus is returning, Jesus is returning, uh, and because it will be delayed, he encourages us to serve patiently. Look at verse 35 in Luke chapter 12. It says this, Be dressed for service and keep your lamps burning as though you were waiting for your master to return from the wedding feast. Then you'll be ready to open the door and let him in the moment he arrives and knocks. The servants who are ready and waiting for his return will be rewarded. I tell you the truth, he himself will seat them, put on the apron and serve them as they sit and eat. Christian, hear me. Plan on waiting a little while and stay dressed for action. Sometimes on a road trip, you prep your children. Hey, this is going to be kind of a long way. You know how long it takes to get to grandma's? Take that and then double it. That means we go to grandma's and then drive all the way home. What am I doing? We're setting expectation. There's going to be some delay. Jesus is setting up an encouragement to be patient because there will be some delay to this. So how do you stay dressed for service? 
I mean, someone could ask this in a really pure-hearted way or a really cynical way. What do I, do I not shower? Do I not eat? I mean, we've got to do stuff, right? We've got to get around. We've got to do things. How do I do that? I think the ones that teach us the most about this are firemen. Now, Jim Cook happens to be off today. I, I, I knew that. I was going to have Jim just dress right in front of me, like just put on his gear. But because Jim's here, I'm going to fire a few questions off. Actually, you guys can kind of answer and, and know that there's a fireman in our presence, okay? So he's going to grade whether you're right or not. So, so how come firemen can get dressed so quickly? Why is that? They practice. What else? They have it all laid out, right? What? I don't hear that. Prepared. Prepared. I just heard hair. I'm like, uh, they don't do their hair, I'm sure. I, maybe they do. That's why Jim's got an easy to cut, you know, do. He just does it. All right. So they get dressed really, really quickly, right? Uh, why, why are they so concerned about getting dressed quickly? To get to the fire faster. Why? Why do they want to get to the fire faster? Time is everything. Like, like what's on the line? Lives could be on the line, Right? Your precious house with the memories, like that could go up. But, but even far more significantly is that lives could, could be at stake right here. Now, let me ask you this. Jim, do you guys ever eat at the firehouse or do you just stay dressed and ready all the time? Yeah, lunch and dinner. Lunch and dinner. So, so you guys eat together. Let me ask you this. If you guys were eating, I mean, you just sat down to a really nice Thanksgiving meal because you have to work Thanksgiving. Would you guys interrupt Thanksgiving meal for a, for a call? Like if, if the fire bell went off or whatever it does, would, would you interrupt your, your meal? Yeah, of course. Of course. Why? Yeah, let me ask you this. If someone, if someone stayed, you said, you know what, guys, if this just came out. We worked really hard on this turkey. Let's grab a quick bite. What would be said? It's not the job we're called to do. Yeah. Would, would everyone in the firehouse agree that that person's in the wrong? Yes. All right, and what would happen to that person? They, they, right, and they, they'd probably join the crew and, and get out there, and if they chose not to, what would happen? Yeah. Yeah, there would be some discipline for it, absolutely. Now, one more question just for fun. Do you actually get to slide down a pole? We can, but I don't. Oh, man. <laughs> right into the boots. And is there a Dalmatian that, that lives at the station? No. Okay, so those are, those are a couple of, of, uh, of things. I just wanted to ask you, Jim. All right, listen, hear me. The firehouse is like a church. The firehouse is like a church. We are to stay dressed and ready. Does it mean that we can't make food and eat it? Of course not. But Thanksgiving meal, all the effort to put this great potluck together is trumped, what? By the call, by the mission. And those who would linger, those who would begin to think that potlucks are more important than the master's bidding that comes whenever it comes, ought to be just like the firemen who sit and say, no, let's eat, guys. They should be shouted down very, very quickly in love and say, you get out here. This is why we exist. We are not here for the potluck. We are not here for our program. We are here for the mission of Jesus Christ. Why would we be so urgent? Why would we, why would we be so disciplined to have our stuff laid out, to actually rehearse it, and then to call one another, to get involved in one another's lives, to say, brother, sister, you're missing it. Keep your eyes focused. Why would we do that? Here's why. Because much is on the line. 
So much is on the line. Not only for the souls that we're called to minister to, to serve, to proclaim the gospel to, but for our own souls as well. Do not let your worry-free life lead to a lazy life. Do you know why God cares for all these things? Do you know why God says, pay attention to birds, look at fields, your clothes, your food, you're good, I've got you, I see you. You know why? It's not so you can coast. It is to get full confidence to say, I can live free of that. The whole world stresses about these things nonstop. I get to live free of that so that I get to see the world. I get to see people. I get to see circumstances. I get to see the holidays. I get to see time off. I get to see my job and my schooling unlike anyone else on the planet. I get to see it as my mission field. I get to see it as an interaction of God who made this place and God who told me who he's, what he's like and, and is with me and, and to say, God, I'm yours. How can, I, how can I just live today yours? The delay of Jesus Christ is patience. Why isn't Jesus coming back? He's being patient towards the wicked. Because Jesus' delay is patience, so you, Christian, wait patiently. But don't just wait patiently. Jim doesn't sit around doing nothing at the fire station. What is he doing? He's reviewing things. He's practicing. There's downtime, of course. But he's not just sitting there getting fat and lazy. He is on call and ready. We use this thing all the time around here, this idea of of restful obedience. It's your hand right now. Your hand is not autonomous from the rest of your body doing activities, doing all the things that a hand can do because your hand would be annoying if it did that. Your hand is restfully obedient. What does that mean? It means the moment the head says, hand, reach for the water. Other hand, take the lid off. Drink. I really needed a drink. Um, Your hand just does it. The master says, do this. You don't have to disentangle yourself from all these tricks that you were doing, all this busy work you were doing. You were restfully obedient. It's the firemen in the station. They're not doing busy work. They're not sitting there loafing. They're restfully obedient. The moment there's a call, day or night, they're on it. This is the readiness of a Christian. Look at this passage in 2 Peter chapter 3. It says, the Lord is not slow about his promise, as some count slowness, but is patient towards you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. But the day of the Lord will come like a thief. Then the heavens will pass away with a roar, and the heavenly bodies will be burned up and dissolved, and the earth and the works that are done on it will be exposed. Servants found faithful are rewarded. What's the reward? It's the unthinkable picture of the master donning the servant's clothes and seating you and serving you while you eat. That's a part of the picture that Jesus paints as the reward of heaven. All right, so he not only encourages patience, uh, but because it will be a surprise, he warns us to stay awake. We're learning things about the return of Christ. There's going to be some level of display. When the Bible says, hey, don't, don't think God's slow about His promise, people are going to say that. That's not what it is. He's being patient towards you. He's giving you more time. There's more work to be done. It's also letting us know that it's going to be a surprise. And because so, there's a warning here. Stay awake. Verse 38, he may come in the middle of the night or just before dawn, but whenever he comes, 
He will reward the servants who are ready. Understand this. If a homeowner knew exactly when the burglar was coming, he would not permit his house to be broken into. You also must be ready all the time. For the Son of Man will come when least expected. You know what happens in the dark? People are tempted to fall asleep on the job. People are tempted to take shortcuts when they think no one else will find out about it. Jesus gives us a warning. Don't do it. Stay ready. Stay present. Whatever you believe about the future determines how we live in the present. And I say this in a collective way, but it's really an individual thing. Whatever you believe about the future will determine how you live in the present. Now, there's different philosophies for getting your kids dressed in the morning. And seeing how kids dressed is a little bit like seeing school projects. There's sometimes when it's school project turn-in day, and you're like, yep, dad made that project. There's no first grader on the planet who can, who can put together that project the way that happened right? And then there's other philosophies that say, no, we're just letting the kid go for it. Let me ask you a question on this kid right here. Who is dressing and posing this kid, right? Like there's someone else involved in this. Now, over time, this kid may sort of like begin to own this and start to do these things. But when you see this, you know that these parents, these caretakers are subscribing to the philosophy that says we're going to dress the kid. Look at this kid's school projects. I almost guarantee you it's going to be a killer project like A plus for the adult. All right? We are not of this mindset. We allow our kids. This is why. You can judge us if you want, but this is why our kids don't look this put together most of the time. Our five-year-olds come in the morning and they say this. They say, is it going to be hot or cold today? Life is binary to five-year-olds. Isn't that awesome? Is it going to be hot or cold? And we just tell them, it's going to be about like yesterday. It's going to be super hot. It's going to be pouring and windy. I've never once tried to trick my five-year-olds. I've just told them plainly what they need to hear. And here's what they do. Is it going to be hot or cold today? Hot. And they walk back to their bedroom and they go back and they dress accordingly. Why? Because they believe something about the future, right? They believe that mom and dad tell them the truth. They take us at our word and they go and they act accordingly. What we believe about the future in all of life is how we will act in the present. Based on this, do you want to know how you can determine what you actually believe? you're a theology student, don't look at your papers. If you're a churchgoer, don't look back on all the things you've written down or that you talk about. Here's how you know what you believe about the future. All you do is you take inventory for how you are living right now. Take the last seven days and just take an inventory, your calendar, what was on the front of your mind, how you used your money, what you planned to do, what you actually did, what you blow off as not important, who you spend your time with, where you go. I mean, we can just go on and on. Just take inventory. That's what you believe about the future. When you talk about the second coming of Christ, I don't know what that conjures up to you, but I grew up in the church, and it conjures up all kinds of wacky things. I think many, many, many people 
get the second coming of Christ completely wrong, and here's why. They dive into things that are secondary issues. They're important things because they're in the scripture. But here's what they do. They get hung up and fighting about timelines, about signs, about prophetic interpretations, about charts, right? About all these different things. I think all of those things are secondary to something that is far more pressing. Here's the far more pressing. Do you, individual, live as if Christ is going to appear again or not? That is far and away the most pressing issue about Jesus Christ's return. Once you get that settled, then there's a lot of other things to look at, and it's interesting, but that's by far the most important thing. Jesus is saying, stay awake. There is so much to lull us to sleep, and there is so much at stake. And so this is a do kind of a teaching. This is a kind of a thing where we need to stay sharp and stay diligent. Jesus says, you also must be ready all the time. Do you know that the Bible compares Jesus as our groom and the church as his bride? We just sang this, right? Just like our spiritual marriage and our physical marriage. In our physical marriage, there's no days off in marriage. So much is at stake. You don't get... PTO, you don't get vacation days. You don't just hit pause on marriage for a little bit. There's no days off in your physical marriage. There's no days off in your spiritual marriage. Much is at stake. So when is Jesus coming back? Well, here's a couple things we see. It's going to be unexpected. It is going to be a massive surprise. And for millions of people, it will be a wonderful, glorious surprise. And for millions more, wide is the path, easy is the life that leads to death. For millions more, there will be utter terror awaiting them. It will be a surprise of the worst kind. So it will come unexpected. And secondly, there will be certain signs that will take place before it happens. Jot down Luke 21, 25 to 28. Luke 21, 25 to 28. We're not going to get there for a little while. But what I, want to, I want, what I want you to see is this. It will be unexpected, and there are signs that will accompany these. You need to see as you read through Scripture, there are many things. Isn't that in opposition? Isn't that saying two separate things? No, no. It's not opposition. It's tension. So there is a tension here that there are signs given. Why is there so much prophecy? Why are there these signs? It's because God wants us to dig into these things. If that becomes the primary thing, you're totally missing it. In fact, that he's returning is infinitely more important than when he's returning, right? Just knowing for sure that he's going to complete what he inaugurated on the cross is first things first. Then we can get into the second parts of it. All right, let me give you a couple of quick things just on this when Jesus is coming back. If someone ever tells you that they figured it out and they know the date, don't believe them. You got scripture that says you're wrong. All right, here's another one. When people say that he's not coming back, don't believe it. He is coming back. And when people mock you that it's been a really long time, uh, act however you want, don't believe it. That's the patience of the Lord giving time for the wicked. Jesus is coming back. 
We look back on the faithfulness of God as evidence for the fact that he will come through on future promises. Now, if some of you are confused, you're in good company. So is Peter. Uh, In verse 41, Peter says this. Peter asked, Lord, is that illustration just for us or is it for everyone? Don't you wish Jesus would just say, oh, no, that's for everyone. He doesn't do that. He answers with more illustrations. So here we go. Here's number three. Jesus is coming back, and because it will be to judge, he compares a good and bad servant. Look at verse 42. And the Lord replied, a faithful, sensible servant is one to whom the master can give the responsibility to manage his other household servants and feeding them. If the master returns and finds the servant has done a good job, there will be reward. I tell you the truth. The master will be put, will, will, will put that servant in charge of all he owns. But what if the servant thinks, my master won't be back for a while, and he begins beating the other servants, partying and getting drunk? The master will return unannounced and unexpected, and he will cut the servant in pieces and banish him with the unfaithful. While on earth, Jesus laid aside his divinity, but while on earth, he didn't lay aside his understanding of authority. He's in front of the most powerful man in Jerusalem, and the man is asking him, aren't you fearful of me? Like, I hold your life in my hands. Here's Jesus' response. Remember it? He says, you would have no power over me at all unless it were given to you from above. Jesus understands authority. All authority comes from God. You don't have to acknowledge it as coming from God or not. It still comes from God. And like a good or bad egg in Willy Wonka, remember that? You put the egg on. Like a good or bad egg in Wonka, the servants are judged good or bad. Now, open book test. Look at your Bible. What represents a good servant in what we've been reading this morning? Call it out. What's a good servant? He's serving. Okay, that's good. Does what the master wants. Always ready. What else? Faithful. Prepared. What's a bad servant? Partying. Lazy. Disobedient. Doing whatever the heck they want. Right? Beating people. Cautious. All right. You know, both good and bad servants are going to get caught. One day they're going to get caught because the master is going to come back. When my dad used to drive around as a kid, we'd always be driving. We'd go, Dad, there's a cop. My dad inevitably would give the same response. Great. Dad, why is that so good? Well, because they're out there doing their job. They're protecting, they're serving. They're keeping people safe. They're doing what they're supposed to be doing. My dad never let his foot off the gas. He never braked. He never said, where? Why? Because my dad drove like every other person around was a cop. If a cop ever caught my dad driving, he would catch him doing something right. That's just how my dad drove. Now, he was raising four little criminals because we were always pointing out where the cops were, right? But we had this sense of like, man, there's a cop. You better, you know, someone's doing something wrong. Now, if only it weren't for sin nature, cops would always do what they are called to do. If it weren't for sin nature, their job would be a lot easier because drivers would be doing what they are supposed to be doing. 
It's not that way. So we're going to get caught doing the right thing or doing the wrong thing. I want you to think for a moment of all of the people, if authority is all given by God and it's all given to serve those that that you're called to lead, think about every leader you've ever had in life. Parents and teachers and bosses and sergeants and yard duties and pastors and coaches and on and on it goes. Just think in your mind, were they good leaders or were they not? Did they use their authority in a way that served and blessed those they were called to lead or not? Now think about you for a second. Most in this room have been given some level of authority. You are gifted authority rightfully over other people. Are you using it like a good servant or a bad servant? If you get caught today with how you are utilizing the authority you have, however giant it may be or however limited it may be, are you in danger of getting caught doing the right or wrong thing? In every single arena that I can imagine, we see corruption of leadership. Think about the government, academic and scientific institutions, the military, the church, the home, Authority abusers are missing it on several levels. They are misjudging how much time they have. Remember the foolish servant who had all this stuff? Tonight, your soul is required of you. You thought you had a ton more time. You were wrong. They're also mistreating the very people they're supposed to be helping. Jesus says if, if you've been given authority to feed people and you're partying and beating them, you're a bad egg. You're not using your authority right. Finally, they're misusing their position and resources for their own comfort and their own advancement. What is partying and abusing others doing? It's taking the position and the resources and hoarding it. This is the great wickedness and the great temptation of leaders in any field. Hear me, leaders. Hear me, Christian. You will be held accountable. Let me say this loud and clear. The church and the Christian home should be the leaders in all of the city that are showing forth servant leadership the way Jesus modeled it. Jesus had all authority and washed the feet of his disciples. We don't see him partying. We don't see him beating other people. We don't see him using his position to gain wealth or stuff or status. We will be held accountable Look at this passage in Hebrews. Obey your leaders and submit to them, for they are keeping watch over your souls as those who will give an account. That's how we're to lead. Lastly, we see the justice of God on display. Number four is uh, Jesus is returning. Because he is just, he contrasts levels of responsibility. Look at verse 47. And a servant who knows what the master wants and isn't prepared and doesn't carry out those instructions will be severely punished. But someone who does not know and that does something wrong will be punished only lightly. When someone has been given much, much will be required in return. And when someone has been entrusted with much, even more will be required. You know, there's a brand of discipleship that is sort of void of devotion. It's naming Jesus as your teacher, saying that you're his student, but you never go to class. 
You aren't doing any of the lessons. You don't really go on the field trips. It's not enough to name Jesus as your teacher. A follower who doesn't follow is a fake. Can't get any more simple than that. A follower who doesn't follow is a fake. James says it really simply. Whoever knows the right thing to do and fails to do it, for him it is sin. We have an interesting thing in our culture that one is considered educated if they know the right answer. Dallas Willard was the philosophy head at USC, was there for over 48 years. He used to joke with his students by asking them this as they turned in their philosophy exams. He would look at them and say, do you believe what you wrote? And they'd always laugh. It doesn't matter if they believe it, right? It's just a test. They're just putting the right answers on there. That's not what's being tested. Church, whether it's knowledge or money or influence or energy, steward what you've been given well. We have a fairly educated group of people in this room. We have a fairly affluent group of people in this room. I'm not saying look at your multi-trillion dollar neighbors who own giant companies. I'm saying look at your broader neighbors. We have much to be thankful for. We have much to steward well. You know, the seasons teach us about the varying nature of God. And as you go through life, you want God to be different things in different seasons. You actually discover God to be different things in different seasons. We want a God who is tender and patient. We want a God who is faithful. We want a God who is just and strong and fun and creative and helpful and wise. When you're in between the inauguration and the final restoration, this period of time that's fraught with danger and difficulty and disease and death and probably a few other Ds I can't think of right now, when you're in this season and Jesus has promised to come again and set all things right, you know what you want? You want a God who is competent. You want a God who sees the beginning from the end, who's able to complete what he starts. You want a God who is able. Close your eyes and listen, or look at the screen and read, whatever helps you to get this last scripture in your mind, from Romans. Or do you presume on the riches of his kindness and forbearance and patience, not knowing that God's kindness is meant to lead you to repentance, but because of your hard and impenitent heart, You are storing up wrath for yourself on a day of wrath when God's righteous judgment will be revealed. He will render to each one according to his works. To those who by patience and well-doing seek for glory and honor and immortality, he will give eternal life. But for those who are self-seeking and do not obey the truth but obey unrighteousness, there will be wrath and fury. There will be tribulation and distress for every human being who does evil. The Jew first and also the Greek. But glory and honor and peace for everyone who does good. The Jew first and also the Greek. For God shows no partiality. God, you are not only alive and well. You are not only our comforter who is faithful. God, you are aware. You are just. You are competent. You are a promise keeper. God, would you drive deep in our heart that we would respect 
your return as much as we would rejoice in your return this morning. Amen.